0: to the St Temelins Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our roundup from all that has been happening on the blog site for May. Although, Simon, I have to say it's been a relatively quiet month on the blog site. But we do have reasons, don't we? We have things that have been going on. You have been on your travels. More of that in a moment. And there's other stuff been happening too. So let's start with, why don't you tell us about your trip? You went away to Lithuania. Yes, I did. I went to Lithuania to a town or a city called Kaunas, which
1: is the second city in Lithuania and used to be the capital. Amazing place, very academic, very young, very vibrant, really beautiful um, city to go and visit and wonderful people. And this was the first, as I understand it, the first international conference uh, for Lithuanian emergency medicine. It was a fairly typical conference format. We had some great talks. We had some fantastic workshops. They really pushed the workshops hard on the first couple of days. Had the opportunity to go out and visit the local trauma centre there, look at their emergency department. And I, you know, I don't know what your sort of perception of Lithuania would be. I mean, did you, would you have any preconceptions about what healthcare will be like in Lithuania?
0: Uh, no, none at all. And if you showed me an atlas, I'm embarrassed to so say I would struggle to find it. Although it strikes me as one of those exciting countries that we should be visiting more. Absolutely. So, Lithuania, it's one of the Baltic states. It used to be part of the
1: USSR. There was a revolution there and it's now a proud independent nation. Lots of really exciting things going on there. Very beautiful uh, traveling through there. So, I'd strongly recommend a visit, actually. And the health services, very well organized, actually. Um, Their trauma center that we visited, big emergency department, lots of space, and incredibly well thought through. I mean, I was going through there thinking, why didn't we we do this? Why didn't we do that? Their reception areas where they have this ability to have isolation rooms as people. People are coming in with doors to the outside and to the inside and decontamination areas and all sorts of things like that. Very, very impressive with a bunch of emergency physicians out there who are young, they're dynamic, they're really excited about emergency medicine and great speakers. So if you're ever looking to get someone to come and speak from Lithuania, then by all means get in touch via us and we'll put you in touch with the right people. If you get the opportunity to go out and visit them out there, I would strongly
0: recommend it. It was a lot of fun and I learned loads it sounds almost like the dream doesn't it take emergency medicine and start again and design it how you want to at my place we are most certainly forever trying to add bits to what is already a department that exists and and the idea of i think somebody this locally called it the a bit like a computer if anyone could turn it off and on again you could start <laughs> emergency medicine again from the start rather than what we've got now, which is adding stuff and adding stuff. And again, we should mention just how hard it can feel at the moment in emergency care. We're seeing lots of that activity on Twitter, uh, lots of unhappiness within the junior doctor ranks. And I suppose at St Emlins we just want to try and cheer you along, remind you that there is good stuff without trying to become toxically positive, which is another phrase I heard recently. So we are thinking of you all in your different parts of the UK and beyond. Let's get on, Simon, and think a little bit about what we can be doing in emergency care from the blog site this month. One of the biggest posts this month was about becoming a researcher in emergency medicine. This is from Thomas Shanahan, who's forging an excellent career already up in Manchester. There's a lot to this, isn't there? Because research is one of those words that can strike fear into a heart of an individual like me, and for others, it's purely exciting. But what would you suggest for people who are thinking about having a subspecialist career in research as part of their emergency care portfolio?
1: I thought this was a really excellent post, actually, and, and having been involved in and around academia for many, many years and looking after academic trainees even, I actually thought that the clarity here is excellent. And I'd strongly recommend that people have a look at it if they've got any interest in research. And what Tom's done is he's um, found a way to negotiate through all of these seemingly random terms about, you know, what's an ACF and what does it mean to be a clinical academic versus an NHS clinician with an interest in research and all the different ways and the different flavours that you can be involved in research. I, I think the broad idea in here is you've got these paths for people who essentially want to be research is their main reason for being they're ultimately going to end up employed by a higher education authority clinical academic with a university appointment and their major role is to do research that's how they're measured that's how they're valued and then there's a whole bunch of other people who are clinicians as well. I mean, they're they're both clinicians, but maybe the proportions are different here, who've got a really strong interest in research, who actually make research happen, and often the clinical type of research. And what Tom's post tells me, and and has been my experience too, is that there is a place in research for all of these people, for people who it's the main thing in their life, for people who've got a strong interest, and for people who've got an interest, but it's not the main thing that they want to do, but they're there in the hospitals, in the departments, making it happen. He describes very well how you negotiate through those sort of things I mean it, within St. Emlins we've got people like uh, Rick Bodie, who is clinical academic, he is a superb researcher, but his main thing in life is research and 've got people like me who have got an honorary academic appointment, but mostly i'm a clinician, and I do some research and then we've got other people in the team who are really interested in research and critical appraisal, but don't necessarily do it themselves
0: yet and this post is so nicely designed because it helps navigate all of those things that you might come across if you were to google how do i do research it was it's in one place which is fabulous and we've done it before with a few other things i tried to do it with a post about the dip imc just bringing resources into one place so that if you're interested in this you can have a read and there's so many ways in there's so many funding streams there's so many different ways in which you could do it And I do think that portfolio careers, having mentioned just how hard things are at the moment, is a big deal. I know that for me, my portfolio career of having a bit of pre-hospital activity and some medical school activity really balance out that shop floor intensity that I have when I'm clinical. And actually, people can think about this as early in their career as they want. That's not being weak. It's not taking the easy way out. It's actually finding ways to keep your interest and mean that those shop floor shifts are enjoyable.
1: Yeah, and we saw with the research um, during COVID 19 just how powerful it can be. I mean, I I still go, I'm going to be talking about the recovery trial until I uh, shuffle off this mortal coil. But I mean, that showed just the impact of what good quality research can do. And there's lots of other examples of that knocking around, both at sort of local, regional, national, and international levels. Anybody out there who says, I'm interested in doing research, this
0: post will give you an opportunity to understand how you can make that happen. And not only that, there are names in there of people who are more than happy to talk to you. Often the hardest bit is finding somebody who you can get some advice from. And we're lucky in emergency medicine that the the ever-expanding professorial group are very happy to help. And so do get in touch with them if you're interested. Simon obviously is hiding his light somewhat under a bushel, but would be more than happy to talk to you about how you can do things too. And think about a portfolio career. It's not just research. It's not just pre-hospital. There's so many things you can be doing. I mean, heaven's above, Simon, you can even advise programs if you're feeling absolutely crazy. Well, why not? Why not indeed? Let's move on to some journal club posts, just two for this month. The first one was about positioning of pads for cardioversion. And actually, this post came out, and the same day I was then cardioverting somebody from AF, and so I passed it on to the group I had on the shop floor with me. And this is about whether you have that AP position or the anterolateral AL position for cardioversion out of AF. It's an interesting one, isn't it? So, what what would if you hadn't have read the post, what which would you have gone for? As we were about to do this cardioversion, the pads had gone on in the AP direction, so there was one on the front, one on the back. And I said, hang on a second, I'm sure I've read something about this. And we changed. Well, I mean, that's incredibly heartening to hear because that that's
1: actually means there's a patient impact based on what we put on the blog. And the research happens and change happens. So that's really, really good because, well, we'll come to the conclusion in a second. But I would have probably done the same. It is. It is, seems to be largely... Held belief at the moment, certainly in our part of the world, that AP is better than AL. But the evidence wasn't great. So there has been a trial published in circulation, um, a randomized control trial, which of course is what we want to see, multi-center, a randomized open label trial looking at whether or not the AL position, anterolateral, is better than the AP position, anteroposterior. And these are, these are, are pretty much elective patients. These aren't the, the sort of the patient that you were doing in the ED. What do they actually do? They took 468 patients and they randomly assigned them to one or the other. And in terms of success rate, in terms of, you know, did you actually manage to get this person out of AF? 54% assigned to the AL position, cardioverted, and 33% according to the AP position. So a clear and really quite profound difference in success between AL and AP, with AL, trilateral positioning, being more effective than AP for doing AF. couple of caveats. I'm doing less cardioversion of AF in the department. Um, there was a nice paper that showed that if you left a lot of your AF patients for between 12 and 24 hours, they'd probably pretty much spontaneously cardiovert the majority of the men themselves anyway. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do. And also, our emergency patients are probably slightly different to this group, so it may not be applicable. And of course, the other sort of cardioversions that we do, so for things like VT, then that wasn't represented in this group of patients, so we don't know whether it would work for VT. Having said that, it's about maybe the physics of how these things work. So perhaps if I was faced with a VT patient, I'd probably apply
0: this information to that since there isn't any data out there for VT. I love it when research counteracts what we held as beliefs. And I think I remember from uh, the teaching we had before was, oh, well, try the anterolateral position. And if that doesn't work, then go to AP, hmm. as if somehow AP was better, but it was inconvenient because you kind of had to get around the back of the patient. And of course, AP was never really a consideration when we had the handheld defibrillators. Remember those? Oh, yeah. Of the nice sticky pads that we have now. So this has been something that sticky pads made us think about. And maybe we thought were better because we had sticky pads. And now we're back to, well, actually, anterolateral is, is OK.
1: Yeah, I mean, I go back even further. So when I started doing defibrillation, it was the two paddles with the jelly on that came in yeah. the tube, like jelly. Rub them together and then try and defibrillate the patient. Then we went to sort of the conduction pads, and now, as you say, the the sticky pads. I've got to say it, they're clearly more effective. The sticky pads, I'm I'm pretty certain. But
0: there was a lot more showmanship in, involved in the uh, the jelly pads. Oh, I, the waving around of the the pads in your ALS scenario was the thing that got you. Uh got you uh, failed wasn't it when it was. you had them in your hand and if they went straight from the machine and they had to go straight on the patient and straight from the patient back in the machine and if at any point you started waggling them around there was bad news and everyone started looking like you were about to kill them by some form of arcing shock going across the room. It was, it was almost like living in a Marvel movie. Yes, indeed. And we've got a nice
1: video actually on the blog from um, ER, the
0: TV show, which uh, I, won't, I won't spoil
1: it, but um, it's well worth a
0: look. So that's AL versus AP positioning. The conclusion being AL. Don't necessarily think that AP is better. And the second paper was about this differential TXA prescribing by gender. So we've had lots of conversations about TXA on the podcast, on the blog, on Twitter, everywhere about whether TXA is a good thing or a bad thing. In the UK, we've come down to it's a good thing in trauma patients with head injury and there's other occasions. But this really highlighted whether or not it depended on your gender as to whether you were going to get given it. Again, we've talked a lot
1: about gender on the on the podcast and on the blog as well, and, and there are differentials for certain patient populations that you can really see in the data. So we do know that women are less likely to get their AMI diagnosed than men are because they may not show the the classical symptoms because most classical symptoms are described on the basis of what men say. There's lots of evidence that um, they have differential prescribing of analgesia between different ethnicities and stuff like that. So this concept of that we might do things differently for different patient groups is not new. But in terms of trauma and in terms of TXA, this is a new question. This is the the same group that did the CRASH-2 and the CRASH-3 trials, publishing in the BJA. And the the paper's quite interesting to read. It's it's, effectively it's in two parts. So the first part is they've taken the data from CRASH-2 and CRASH-3 so crash two, if you remember, was patients who were thought to be bleeding to death from trauma, but not including head injuries. And crash three was patients who got head injuries. So if you combine the two, you got the whole body is the general idea. Having said that, slightly different time period. So maybe not quite the same, but they've combined those two groups together and they've looked at whether or not there's any difference in outcome based on the effect of the TXA between men and women. So they basically just looked and said, you know, if you have the same pattern of injury and you got TXA or didn't get TXA in the two groups was being male or female a difference? The answer is no. So the answer is TXA appears to work equally well in both men and women. If that's the case, you would hope that we prescribe it with equal numbers. So the second half of the paper is they've gone to the TARN database, which is the Trauma Audit Research Network. It's where all the major trauma patients get put in. Well, most of the major trauma patients get put into this database. And they've looked back to find out whether or not patients Who had significant injury, ISS of over nine, actually got given the TXA. And the bottom line is uh, no, there's a big difference between the two. Now, that in itself is quite interesting. If you look at the specific data, they looked at over 200,000 patients over age over 16 with an ISS of over nine in the database. Majority of those were males, about 54% of them. And TXA was received by 7.3% of the females and 16.8% 16.8% of the males, which of course, clinically and statistically significant. It was very interesting that age had an effect. So the differential was much greater the older you were. So if you were young and female and very severely injured, there's probably not that much of a difference. But the older you are with a lesser injury, the difference gets more and more. And to my eyes, the, the issue with this paper is that it doesn't really account for mechanism of injury. There's quite a few older patients who we see who get fairly significant ISS scores from low energy falls, and they're less obvious when you see them initially. So the clues why you might not give TXA to this group of patients are not as obvious. Having said that, the the difference is pretty, pretty clear across all age groups. I think it's one of those papers that tells us there is a difference between the prescribing between men and women. What it doesn't do is it doesn't tell us why. I think that's what people have been struggling with this paper is there is a difference, but why is that? Is it mechanism injury? Is it the type of um, falls, particularly in
0: the elderly? Mm, I don't know. It's a tricky one. There's always been a slight problem with using ISS for these things, hasn't there? Because that is a score that you can only put together once you know what the injuries are. And some of those injuries are hidden. And as you say, they're multiplied. So the injury severity score, which I'm sure people remembered, it's scored out of six for the top three damaged body areas. You take the square of each score. So if you score one for head, it's squared. It's one. If it's two, it scores as four. You then add those three scores up and that gives you your injury severity score. But that can only be done once you know what the injuries are. And that can only happen after the patient's been investigated. And this is our big problem with older patients who it turns out have had what we would call major trauma. They have often two or three body parts that are injured. So they can score two on each of them, which means a kind of minor type injury, but still an injury. So two squared plus two squared plus two squared gives you an ISS of twelve. But each of those injuries themselves may not be that apparent. There's a lot more to the ISS than there perhaps seems at first. Firstly it's retrospective and perhaps maybe, just a complete hypothesis, maybe the the male people manage to have one injury to one body part that's significantly awful, which is obvious. They've got a completely smashed up head. And maybe, just maybe, the females are having Multiple smaller injuries as part of their trauma, not dissimilar to our elderly patients, which are picked up later. Undoubtedly, it's true that the female population are not getting the TXA in the same way the male population are. But I think this is as much about picking up major trauma in female patients as it is about giving TXA, perhaps.
1: Yeah. And we're certainly not trying to make excuses for this uh, or to undermine the the importance of um, looking at sex differences or any sort of patient group differences in prescribing because it's a really, really important area. But I'm always looking for the, so why is this happening? Because once we can understand the why, then we can do something specifically targeted to make it better. So I think there's a bit more work to be done here. And, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to a little bit more information coming out to try and help me understand it a bit better
0: and do better. So Simon, a relatively light month on the blog. You've been travelling. You, you've also had the return of, well, not for you the return. You, you, you've finally managed to get COVID. Uh, so you're just coming out the end of your first episode of COVID. Yes, and I didn't, I didn't enjoy that at all, actually. It was quite
1: unpleasant. So I've never had it before. So yeah, that was another reason why we've been a bit light on content of late, because I've been a bit
0: poorly. But now the sun is shining in the UK. We're about to have a heat wave. Please keep yourselves rehydrated. Perhaps we need to have some posts on environmental emergencies. Uh, I was thinking the other day that I need to advise Lyme disease because living down near the New Forest, it's something that we often see in primary care and in the emergency department. So I'm going to be looking up those different bits about Lyme disease. There is a lesson plan if you'd like to go and have a look at it. It's always great to talk to you on the podcast. Please do like, subscribe, do all those other things that podcast people tell you, and we'll look forward to speaking to you again next month. Have fun, everybody.